Hi, I'm Scott Curtis, and this is Pod Around and Find Out. It's a podcast. You listen to it. Folks, welcome back to Pot Around and Find Out. Today, I've got Jeff Greenspan on the show, and Jeff has held positions such as Chief Creative Officer for BuzzFeed, Creative Strategist for Facebook, and his writing's been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, TechCrunch, ABC TV, among many others. And after spending time in New York, London, and L.A., Jeff's current home base is in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And that's a what the actual fuck type question there. You can see him performing socially relevant stand-up comedy all over the country. It's just Greenspan. Jeff, thanks for doing the show. Thank you for having me. I like the intro makes me sound interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. I I don't remember exactly how I found you. I think it might have been an Instagram reel or something. It was crazy. Yeah, something yeah, Craigslist. Yeah, of course. And I thought you looked pretty interesting, and I liked your sense of humor, and then I dug in a little bit, and you had quite a eventful life, I'd say. So far. Thank you. And when you said I looked yeah. interesting, did you mean because I look like you? or, or? Well, you know, we're, we're pretty close. We look, it's, it's uncanny. <laughs> so, you know, I always like to get grooming, tri- gr- grooming tips. So, There's uh, a lot of different what, things nowadays. Yeah, I know. I, I've got a manscape joke, so I know that. <laughs> what do you uh, shave your head with? I use either Aveeno shaving cream or I okay. use Dollar Shave Club's shave butter. I'm not scared, <laughs> although I'd like to be. And and a Gillette razor. Gillette's got more money. I'd still like to be. And yeah, I just, I know that people have this type of razor you can, you can attach to your hand, but it's always kind of freaking out. And I used to be really, really disturbed about losing my hair i lost it pretty young like in my 20 23 24 but this look has come into we can all thanks bruce willis it all came into into fashion yes thank you bruce willis and i i ask about your your shaving routine because i joined the facebook group and you talk about a rabbit hole of shaving your head. I mean, these guys, they buy all these fancy creams and brushes and razors and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just like you. I go pretty simple. I do have a rotary, one of those bald head rotary things. And for a quick shave, I actually did it today, so it's not too bad. For a quick shave, you it's pretty it good. Every two days? Every two days, three days, basically whenever I come out of my house so oh, that's okay. when i do it sounds like sometimes, sounds like sometimes there's, a lot that's a there's a lot to unpack <laughs> yeah uh as i told you when i contacted you i'm gonna i was gonna internet stalk you and find out everything i could about you and the thing that i found most interesting and we may actually have to do two episodes here because the the thing that stuck out to me is that you worked for IRS Records. Oh my God! And, People our age would even know what that means. And that's Yeah, it was a wild experience. It was pretty incredible. I mean, I was like you know an intern. I was probably making like five bucks an hour or something. But I, I guess twenty years old or nineteen years old. And the band that I worked the closest with was a band called Concrete Blonde. Yeah. REM was on the label. They had just left the label actually, but the Go Go's were there. 
and had left. So when I was there, the the big band that was there was Concrete Blonde, Timbuk Three, which had like a one hit wonder with the future so bright. I gotta wear shades. Okay. Then they signed like Leslie West and Mountain, and it kind of moved to a different direction. I was only there for you know probably eight months or seven months. I worked for a guy named Steve Karras, who I'm still friends with on Facebook. He was the director of publicity, and I was his assistant. And I used to work in radio, and I was at like you know a party at the radio station, and I you know there was a woman who worked there, and we got to chatting, and she's like, "What do you want to do with your career?" And I thought it would be in music. I didn't play music. I'm not musical at all, but I love music so much uh-huh. to, to support other artists. And I remember I was hanging out with Jeanette Napolitano, who's the singer of, of Concrete Blonde, one day. And she's like, what, what are you doing? Why are you working at this label? What are you trying to do? And I said, I just love artists so much. I want to support artists. And if I can't play, I want to work at a label. She goes, well, if you want to support artists, the last place you should be working is a label. She's like, all they do is fuck us. And that was like my introduction to like the capitalist machine behind the commodification of art, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so she taught me, she taught me a lesson and I actually hung out with her backstage a few years ago. She was playing in New York city and she remembered IRS records and we had a little catch up. That's cool. That it's so cool. And like you, I am not musically inclined, but I'm a huge, huge music lover. And I think it's better for us to really enjoy music because we're not picking it apart. We're, you know, we're not saying, oh, we missed a note here, or I would have played it that way or whatever. And, you know, as comedians, we we can't really enjoy comedy unless we can totally take ourselves out of the examining it and, and trying to break it down to, you know, how we would do it and stuff like that. So I'm really glad that I went with comedy instead of music because I I love music and I didn't, I don't want knowing how to play it to ruin, ruin yeah that would suck because you know music is in the background of your life so much more often than comedy imagine if just like driving to the store you had to like pick apart what was on the on the radio you know but yeah you know it's funny you say that because yeah i mean i still do enjoy comedy but i do i do watch it more like watching a chess game now than i do you know an entertainment event but i will say and i hope this isn't too kiss assy to kiss another comedian's ass or anything but like Last night I had the opportunity, and tonight and, and Sunday, to to host for Sean Padden. And I was watching Sean Padden. And, you know, he's a comedian who's writing, not only do I love, but, like, I just get lost in it. And I found myself just enjoying it like an audience member. For a moment, I forgot I'm a comedian, and then I forgot that I'm working on a show. And so it's quite a, I mean, he's one of my favorites. And it's just great to see someone who's talking about things that I think are important and interesting, mixed with stuff that's just silly, but with such an energy that you just... I stopped picking it apart like, you know, like a academic exercise. It's just, it's just right. It. Yeah. And, and though there, there's a few that can really, Sean's one of them that can really take me out of that. And I consider that, first of all, they're a comedian's comedian, but they being able to take me out of just trying to, like you said, be in a director's chair is good. But him and uh, Stuart Huff. You know, those those are the two that really that that I can just sit back and enjoy and not have to worry about getting taken out of it at any point. You can just uh, be a fan. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. It's it's nice and special when it happens. I'm so glad that at IRS you got to you, you, you actually got to hang out with Concrete Blonde. Oh, I mean, Concrete Blonde. And and, you know, I didn't get paid a lot of money, but, you know, I got backstage passes to most things that I wanted in New York. Well, not, if not backstage passes, at least free tickets. 
to a lot of really great shows. And I was very young, great shows, and I got to be exposed to artists performing at a very high level at, you know, 19 years old, 20 years old. I became somewhat friendly with, with through working at IRS Records, I got to meet Mark Mothersbauer from Devo, and Devo was a big influence on me. In fact, there's a the piece above the couch there and yeah, yeah. Was, is, is a print from Mark. And so, you know, being exposed to these types of people and hanging out with them and overhearing their conversations and, you know, it had a real effect on me. I mean, I did, I've had a career as a creative person, but only doing, and I wouldn't say I have a comedy, I have a comedy career, but I don't make my living doing comedy yet. But having worked in the creative fields for around 25, 30 years, the exposure to those types of people at such a young age, I mean, it was, it's pretty, I'm, I'm really, I was very, very lucky. Yeah. And when I think of IRS records, so, you know, I, did did you grow up in New York or? Where, where I was, I was born in Brooklyn. That's my street cred, but we left when I was three. Okay. I was in a gang. So, you know, I was a three-year-old in a street gang in Brooklyn. We had to leave. We went out to. Of course. Yeah. Of Long yeah. Island. And then I moved back to the city. I started working in the city at like 19. And then I moved into the city, I guess, like at 24. So, okay. so you know, I come from totally different and, you know, being being before internet like you are and like I am, I grew up in Lakeville, Indiana, which is just south of South Bend. And culture, there, there, there was no culture, okay? So I didn't get to experience any, so I'm a big punk punk fan, you know, post-punk, alternative, REM was really big for me. And I didn't get it until late. You know, R.E.M. probably had four albums out before I even knew they existed because it just wasn't part of the Midwest flair. And the only reason I got to know them was because WSND is a public radio station out of Notre Dame. And there was an East Coast guy that hosted, I think it was Friday nights and Saturday nights from like 10 to midnight, something like that. And he played all that music and... I was writing all that stuff down as a kid. And, and this is actually pre-IRS. This is like 78 mm -hmm. to 83 or whatever. And and I wrote down all these bands. So that's how I found Blondie and the Ramones and, and, and some bands like Off-Broadway, uh, which they never went anywhere, but they're one of the best power pop bands in, in the world. But I got to hear those. And that's that kind of shaped my musical taste. And then I'd go to the record shop and say, Hey, you got this album? And of course they didn't. You know, they had Bad Company and Kansas and, and all that shit, but they didn't have the stuff that I wanted. But IRS was one of those things. You could follow that label and find stuff that you like. Yeah, it was, and, it was interesting. And I guess that still exists. I don't follow, you know, music as much as I, I mean, I'm 53 now and you, it's easy to lose touch with what's happening culturally, musically. But, you know, you it's interesting because you talked about before the internet, you know, I would get these records and these records were a portal to a completely different world because if you were listening to music that was not top 40 and there was no internet and at one point there was no MTV and you didn't have a cell phone and whatever culture that came to you from outside your community was very filtered and limited. There was college radio, which I got to work in and stuff like that. But I would look at the backs of these albums and look at the liner notes and be like, oh, what, what goes on in my mind at 16 or 15? I'd be like, Oh, IRS records. There must be an office where all the cool people hang out. And you know, I had this like, yeah. you know, like the bands hang out <laughs> at the at the building or something. And then you know, right? Yeah. And you know, living on Long Island, you know, it's it's 
might as well be in the middle of nowhere culturally sometimes, but you're only 45 minutes from Manhattan. So you can get on a train if you're an ambitious kid and go to these buildings and meet the people in them, you know? And, and so it was really, that was really, you know, like I said, these, these albums were like entryways to worlds that just were not being talked about at my high school or in my house. And, you know, you talk, you know, IRS and I'm sure Interscope or other labels might be like this, but like, it was a band that was kind of curating in a way. It wasn't like, you know, Warner Brothers or Electra or anything big where like anybody could be on the label. It was very handpicked and they were, this was also at a time when a label did more than just distribute, distribute your music. They would foster the band. They, you know, the idea was it might take four or five or six albums to get to where you want to go. And, and, you know, I'm not close with REM. I've met the members, but like, I'm not friendly with them, but I've heard in the building that the story was that by the time they got to, before the album Green came out with Warner Brothers, you know, the band had such a good relationship with the people at IRS Records that the band was like, hey, listen, Warner Brothers told us they're just going to kind of double whatever we get. So then IRS was like, well, then let's just offer you a shit ton of money and make them double it. Like there was this, <laughs> there was this like happy, it seemed from the outside, again, I'm not in, on the inner circle of REM, but like, it seemed like there was like, wow, we fostered you to this place over a decade to get you to the place. And it's wonderful to see you guys move on to like another place. And they helped IRS too. There was this reciprocal relationship. Right. And Concrete Blonde, I thought was just one, is, well, was one of the best bands. And she's a fantastic lyricist and singer. And, you know, I encourage people to listen to the Leonard Cohen cover of Everybody Knows by. Yeah. Yeah. Anything Leonard Cohen does is gold anyway. Sometimes I get really stopped thinking about like, oh, the world has never been worse than it is now. And I'm like, nah, Leonard Cohen wrote Everybody Knows a long time ago. Nothing's really changed. Yeah. It's been the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's, fu- it's funny you mentioned Leonard because I I haven't done karaoke for a long time, but Joy was one of my favorite karaoke songs. Oh, yeah. And I did it in the style of kind of Frank Sinatra, Leonard Cohen. I, one, one DJ described me as a cross between Frank Sinatra and Dick Nixon. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that, that's how I come off. But yeah, that's, that was one. I don't of think I've ever heard things. anybody do Leonard Cohen at karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm tone deaf, so that's about as close as I can get. He, you know, he, he had the velvet voice, you know, but it, yeah, but it was, uh, I, I, I think, that's as close as I can get to anybody is Leonard Cohen and, and maybe Dick Nixon if he sang. <laughs> so I was going through all your stuff creatively. Now you you started working for IRS. When did you discover that you were creative? Though you, I, I mean, that that usually hits people at a fairly young age, and I it hit me. And well, also, but yet I just wonder. I grew up in the seventies, where creative could also mean problem child he's a very creative Uh, child maybe we should put him in a different classroom so there was that you know input when i was very very young but the first time i saw adults take notice of what i was doing creatively in a way that i was like oh there could be a life in this was at this radio station wlir and then it was wdre still friends with the people who ran that radio station and this was the radio station at the time that it was the only radio station that would play the Smiths or Depeche Mode or The Cure or The Ramones or, you know, Dead Kennedys or anything like that. It was the only radio station, commercial radio station that would play that where I grew up. And, you know, I started interning there, answering the telephones. And at the time, they had something called the Shriek of the Week or the Screamer of the Week, which was the best song of the week. 
And each DJ would write a little promo to get people to vote for their song. It was like a commercial for the song. And the game of, of these spots was somehow use the name of the band or the name of the song in the sketch. So it was pretty much writing a 30 or 40 second sketch. And, you know, and I was a kid, I was 18 years old or 19 years old. And, you know, I idolized these DJs. I wanted to be a DJ. And, you know, to me, this was one of the coolest things to get to write or perform. But to them, this was like busy work. Like it was kind of like for a lot of them, it was the last thing they wanted to do. So they'd be like, hey, why don't you write them and show me if you I'll pick one. So I'd write a whole bunch of these ideas and then they'd they'd like them and punch them up. And then sometimes I would go and I'd learn how to this is back when there was like tape to tape recording you know, like reel-to-reel recording and you had to actually cut tape with a razor blade and you there was no digital editing. So I learned how to do the voices and do the recording and I wound up acting in them and I didn't really know what I was doing, but pe- adults liked it. And, you know, Dennis McNamara, who I'm still friends with on Facebook, he was the program director of this radio station. He was like, this should kind of be your thing. Why don't you do these? Why don't we give you one that's yours each week and then you could do the overflow of the DJs who just don't have the time to do it. And I had a lot of fun creating these. I guess I was learning how to write ads, not for products, but for songs. And so that was the first time that like, you know, I got able to move out of answering the telephones and get be able to have assigned session time in the studios. And adults gave me their approval for something that I thought was funny and smart and creative. And it was experimental. And so that was the first time I'm like, oh, this is creative, I guess. And I wasn't really making any money at that point, but I was like, adults like it in a business world. So maybe there's something there. Yeah. <laughs> that I, I just think that's great because, you know, I, I, I know how, what you mean about creative and they just think you're weird and you should be in a different class or something. By like the way, that. I was weird and weird. definitely should have been in a different class. Like I was yeah, definitely so, a problem same. child. These were not mutually exclusive events <laughs> yeah yeah same and you know the fact that i grew up and i think there were maybe 90 kids in my class and i was by far the weirdest and and to top it off i was the brooding loner you know i didn't even fit in with the nerds so it, that that was a lot of fun but the funny thing is, is i turned my I, I turned everything off creative for most of my life because i became what like Ron Beddington would say, ham and egger. You know, I just, I got married, had kids and had jobs and just did that. And I, so I didn't start stand up until I was 52. And that, that, that was a definitely an interesting plunge and seeing you being so polished at it. So I watched your epic, one of your epic comedy bits and I, it actually gave me a spit take. Your your first joke saying how you keep your complexion, how, how you keep your complexion looking so so young and not have kids. And every day, I just don't have kids. Right. I, you have to do this. You have to be diligent. You can't let one of yeah, yeah. put through. <laughs> Which is why you look like that, and I look like this. it's They're catching good. up now. I mean, I'm 53, and I started comedy late comparatively as well. 47 is when I started. So what? What made you take that jump into stand-up? Oh, man, it was a confluence of things. <sighs> it was a few things. So, you know, at that point when I started, I had I had been fired from being the chief creative officer of BuzzFeed, and that was kind of devastating to my ego. And so I guess I had been three or four years out of that job and just freelancing. And I was also creating a lot of projects that were getting a lot of viral attention in the art world or on the internet world. There were a lot of kind of activist 
pranks that had comedy to them, like cemented a statue of Edward Snowden in the middle of a public park. And we had created, me and my friends had created tourist lanes on the sidewalks of New York so that, you know, New Yorkers could walk fast and tourists could kind of gawk. And there were these kind of culture jamming moments on the streets of New York and on the internet. And there was a lot of, that brought me a lot of work to try to get attention for brands. So I had a pretty healthy freelance career, but I was really desperately depressed and kind of despondent. And I had all the outward trappings of being successful. I was making really good money. I had a nice apartment. I had flexibility in my work. And I was really, really unsatisfied. And I kind of fell into a very, very deep depression, which I had grappled with before. I don't, I wouldn't say I live with depression daily, but when these bouts come, they can be, they can last a very long time. And, and they've, they've pushed me to get like professional help. It's, it's become touch and go in some of these moments. And this was a go moment. This was, uh, you know, it was, it was not going well uh, uh, mentally. And I was in professional help and I was on medication and I, and I, I thought, let me also take a few classes that might jumpstart parts of my brain to try to get me more present. So I remember I took a Spanish class. I took a jujitsu class and somebody had given me like a free stand up class. And I even balked at, I don't believe you can teach how to be funny, but I was like, I have this free class. I want to fill my days up with classes, maybe in combination with the therapy and the medication, I can jumpstart a part of my brain that isn't in this depressive rut. And, you know, I still probably couldn't tell you my pencil is yellow in Spanish. I got my wife crushed in jujitsu on a Tuesday at 11 a.m. And I'm like, I think I'm done with this. But I've done stand-up almost every single day since that class. And it kind of stuck and gave me kind of a new excitement about being alive. So that's how I got into it and stayed with it. And I've met, I've met some of the best and absolute worst people I've ever met doing stand-up. So I love the highs and lows of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, 100%. You know, as you were talking, I was just thinking if if I could get Scott Eason to jump on this, oh, it would be like triplets. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And also Shuli. Yeah. 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 We're, we're the ball. And yeah. We that's... Get, uh, and we can get uh, David Tell. So we'll get all five of them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny. I have one of my webs, one of the URLs I own is that guy I com. So if I meet, I'll just tell people, hey, if you don't remember my name, just go to thatguyimet.com. And I originally wanted to have, when you go to thatguyimet.com, I wanted it to be like four pictures of bald guys with beards. And you'd have to click on which one you think you had met. And if you pick the wrong one, it'll permanently block your IP address. So you can never never <laughs> connect with me again. But in the end, I just made a link tree. That's all it is. Okay, URLs. I, I I have to tell I have to tell one story that I, I don't think I've ever told anybody before. So you talk about meeting the most awful people in comedy. I I met one of them, and she she was just terrible. And I found out that she wanted to start a thing called Comic Comedy, and and I'm like, okay, cool. I went and bought the domain. <laughs> I've held I've held it I've held it for four years, man. <laughs> I won't get on your bad side. Yeah. Yeah, GoDaddy just emailed me and said, uh, your uh, domain might be worth $1,200. Oh, really? He wants it. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna wait. <laughs> yeah, I just, got, I just got a notice from GoDaddy reminding me that I own shortballjew.com. I'm like, oh, I, I don't remember when I bought that, but it's fucking cool. Yeah. You know? It might come in handy. It, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to Waving your Judaism around the internet these days, who knows? You know, so yeah. So you know, you've obviously got a very, I, I guess, uh, 
a very funny mindset, but it's very, it's 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 a little bit askew of what a normal comedian would think about because, I mean, that hipster traps thing was just absolute genius. Awesome. Can, can, can you talk about that a little bit? Because that's just not. Sure. It's something I, I created with an old friend named Hunter Fine, and we both lived in the Lower East Side, East Village of New York, and, you know, the complexion of the East Village was changing when white people start complaining about gentrification, it's gotten it's gotten to a different level. There was a lot yeah. of hipsters had had moved in and had kind of taken over, and we were just joking around about like you know how we get rid of them. Do we exterminate them? Do we trap them? Is it a trap and release program? What if we made traps? What would a trap look like? Should they should we make hipster traps? What would they be baited with? And so you know we were like, well, but maybe we should try to make these. So we found through Craigslist this guy named Aaron Glazer. Who we were like, hey, who could who does model making? Who can make things? And we told him our idea, and he made a few versions, and we proved one. And they cost like fifty bucks each. They were made of cardboard. They looked incredibly metallic and real. He painted them so they looked like metal bear traps, and they had real springs on them and stuff. And then we baited these bear traps with the things that at the time hipsters would find irresistible: American spirit cigarettes, Wayfarer sunglasses, a fixie bike chain, Pabst blue ribbon, you know, a Holga camera. And then we bought real chains from Home Depot and we chained them around like hipster, hipster hangout spots around the East Village in Brooklyn. And it's kind of funny. We, we put one out on the, on the corner of, I think, 7th and B. <clears throat> and we didn't know what would happen. We didn't know if they'd get blown away. We didn't know if they'd be stepped on. We didn't know if all the props would be stolen or if it would be kicked or if anyone would even notice it. So we chained it up. Like we walked around the block. We came back and we kind of like staked it out. And there was this other guy that kept kind of passing it and looking at it and looking at us and he comes up to us he goes is that yours and we go well we made it but it it belongs to the street and he goes is it <laughs> and we were so amazed because you know hipster trap at that point had just been a file on our desktops but to hear someone see it and then parrot it back to us as what it was we're like that's what it is he goes oh man i love it can i take a picture of it and we're like yeah of course we took a picture of it and you know this is a long i don't remember what years this was a very long time ago there wasn't Instagram or anything like that yet. He goes, well, here's my, here's my, you know, email address. And we exchanged email addresses. And, and then Hunter and I went back to my place to figure out Tumblr. That's how long ago this was. We're like, Hey, we should probably yeah. make a Tumblr and put these pictures up. There was no Instagram. If there was Facebook, there wasn't a newsfeed yet. And, you know, we're making our Tumblr. It's probably been four or five hours since we met that guy. And we get an email from him. He's like, Hey man, I really loved your hipster traps. And the internet seems to like it too. And he had put it on Reddit. I think at that point it had almost 250,000 views in just a few hours. Wow. And then it was you yeah. know, on the front page of Reddit and it got over a million views in a day or so and wound up on the front page of newspapers. Hot Topic wound up ripping us off and making a t-shirt of it and we sued them and or we got an injunction against them or whatever we did. So it was, yeah, it was pretty wild and cool and it spawned a lot of, then we created like tea party traps that we put around Washington, D.C. and we did bridge and tunnel traps for the Jersey folks. They didn't take off the way hipster traps did, but it was a lot of fun. And like, and I wasn't doing stand-up, but that's just a joke that's three-dimensionalized, you know? Yeah, it is. It's 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 just absolute genius. And Crisis Actor Studio, I mean, I, I love that too. And and it, it was of the time, of course, because you, if you say it now, Gen Zers aren't going to even know what you're, you're talking about. But Actor, of the time. Crisis Actors thing was wild. So I did that with this guy, Chris Baker who's a brilliant creative mind who I met through the advertising world. 
And if you don't know what crisis actors are, there is a section of the internet and the culture that believes that <clears throat> these terrible moments in American culture, from school shootings to, you know, other disasters, are are actually manufactured, and the people who are the victims and the witnesses are all actors, and they're called crisis actors. And Alex Jones is a big promoter of this of this narrative. And so there's this TV show called Inside the Actor's Studio where you learn to see the craft from the masters who learned it. And we're like, what if there was Inside the Crisis Actor's Studio where we just accepted the fact that there's actually a school where these people learn to be participants in these terrible moments in, in, in the world. And so we had three, and you know, I'm glad that you liked it. It did not come out the way we wanted. And you know, I make a lot of projects and some of them go better than you would have expected. Some of them are so bad, you can't even document them and share them with anyone. Some of them come out like this one, where we had yeah. three great scripts. We had worked a long time to get them short. I found a friend whose dad looks like James Lipton. James Lipton is the host of Inside the Active Studio. <laughs> he was willing to do it for very little money. We found the location. <laughs> we found the actors that could really pull this off. We, we found a studio full of extras that were willing to show up in the middle of August or July in New York City to be the live audience. We had worked so hard on this. And then we show up for the shoot and one of the ACs in the room is broken. So the room is like hovering around 85 degrees. And a squirrel or something or a rat had died behind the walls of the, of the <laughs> venue. So it was infested <laughs> with flies. And so nice. there was no way to get this studio audience of 50 people to come back. There was no way to get these actors who had traveled from a while. The James Lipton guy traveled from a long ways. We were never getting these guys to come back. We had prepaid for the venue. We were not going to get the venue. So we were like, fuck, what do we do? And, you know, a lot of us on the team were like, let's just send everybody home. It's not going to happen. I'm like, we're all here. Let's just shoot. And we shot. We shot all three. There were so many flies in the videos that we had to cut around this. So we couldn't even edit three of them. We edited one, which was about the Pulse nightclub shooting, you know, and it came out okay. I think everyone did a great job. But if we had all the footage that we shot was usable, it would have been a 10. And instead, I think we did six. Yeah, I mean, I really, my, my favorite part was the, the, the twist at the end where the audience member asked about the dude that had an IMDb credit and, 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 and he says, well, you know, this stuff, this stuff is bound to happen to somebody in the entertainment world. Yeah. That was a lot. Better. I just thought it was great. Yeah. That was a great take from Chris Baker. I think that was mostly from him. He was like, if any of these, so his, his premise was if there's so many of these crises being manufactured, eventually famous people or people borderline famous would be in them like real actors. But that actually yeah. is from something real. There is a crisis actor, or sorry, there's someone being accused of being a crisis actor who does have an IMDb page because he was just like a bit player on some TV shows, you know, like Law and right. or something. And so the conspiracy theorists, of course, rally around that and go, see, these are actually actors. So, and now, you know, we, we filmed that probably five years ago or seven years ago. I mean, now we've, we're just in a world where, you wouldn't even call them crisis actors because I don't think anyone believes anything's real anymore anyway. So what's the point of you taking yeah. anything at this point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree there. So as far as stand-up goes, it, I wanted to get your experience starting out later in life. What 
what do you think was good about starting later in life? Or what what do you think was a struggle? Okay, so the good. And not only did I start later in life, but I started later in life having worked 20 years in advertising. So advertising really does teach you to get to the point quickly. You usually only have 30 yeah. seconds in the commercial. The vocabulary of modern advertising is mostly comedy, certainly not stand-up. Believe it or not, the, the people that I've gotten, I've worked at really good ad agencies. And even though advertising is all lies, the process to get to the lies is all about finding the truth. Like, you know, so what's the truth of something? What's the insight? What I mean, great advertising shares in common with And there's very little great advertising, but the really great advertising shares in common with comedy. Can you find that truth that no one has articulated, but everyone could like nod their head along with? Like, oh, I never thought of it that way, but I don't disagree. You know, that is not the only you know, emblem of great comedy, but it is an element. And so I had 47 years of life experience. I had seen great, I, you know, so I brought that to the table. I had spoken in front of people, you know, I kind of knew my voice. I may not have known my voice on stage, but I knew who I was. And so I wasn't finding myself as a person. I was finding myself as an artist. So those were the good things. The bad things, you could be treated like the guy auditing a college class you know, when you go to the open mics and ultimately, you know what, but everyone's got something, you know, that was just something I had to prove that I could hang or at least write or, and keep up with the demands of, if you really want to do it, I really wanted to do it seriously. And I think that certainly means doing it. I mean, for me, it meant doing it every day and it meant doing it multiple times a day. So, you know, Mm. the bad part is it it is a lot of energy that you don't, it's hard to manufacture that in your forties and fifties to, get up and literally physically run from location to location and and then do the demands of an adult life. You know, like there's no parents taking care of you. So you have to do all the rigors of whatever it is that pays the bills and plus the writing. And 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 I felt I don't know if it, it was justified, but I felt like I had a lot of catching up to do. I started so late. Yeah. So there can't be like, I'll just do one mic a week. It's got to be not nah, every day. This is an, this is another job. And the other bad point, I mean, I don't know if this is bad, but like I'm certainly influenced by a different breed of comic. I was influenced by, you know, Gary Shanling and, and Richard Klein, Robert, Robert Klein. And, you know, and certainly also by like, you know, Andy Cott. There were people who weren't just standing there talking, but it was a less performative event. Stand up that I think was a lot of people stationary speaking. And I think the writing trumped the performances, you know, and. You know, it's a bit of a dated influence, you know, so but that's not really a bad thing. It's just that's everyone's got a style. Everyone's style is influenced by the things they grew up on, whether it be music or other parts of culture. But like there is a little bit of being out of step, but like you can bend that to work for you. So, right. Yeah, that that's what I found, too. And the the thing you mentioned about thinking that you're an auditor for the for the open mic that's that's what i got a lot of and one of the one of the perceptions you get because you know the average age of a comic and an open mic's probably like 25 you know there might be a couple 30 year olds and a couple 18 year olds or whatever but it's probably around 25 and you know a lot of people think that okay he's doing a bucket list thing or they're they're going to be super hacky you know we're, we're going to do bunch of street jokes from the 80s or or something like that and the you have to overcome that more than once to 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 really get the your comedy community to believe you and that that's hard and the funny thing is is up in south bend 
no problem. I was a comedy grandpa. Everything was cool. You know, everybody liked everybody. And then when I came to Huntsville, it's like, oh, shit, I got to do this again. And and you talk about depression. You know, I was going through that myself. And I'm like, I'm not going to do it. So I didn't I didn't really do much stand up for two years. And I'm just really getting back into it. But you got to prove yourself again. And that's hard to do when you're 59. You just be just like, eh, I don't know if I want to do this. Mm-hmm. But I finally decided I do want to do it. So I, I'm going at it full board. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, the big question that's hanging over me is, okay, London, New York, L.A., and Chattanooga, what? Everybody, everybody after Chatt- London and LA does Chattanooga. It's I don't know why you're surprised <laughs> by this by this journey. Yeah, Chattanooga is wild, man. So what happened was, you know, when the pandemic hit, I, I had right before the pandemic, I had been a freelance, a creative director and a copywriter for ad agencies, some some TV shows, writing, but mostly ad agencies. <clears throat> and when the pandemic hit, you know, everything was remote and I wound up working remotely for this agency called a production company called Humanot, which is based in Chattanooga. And I was doing this with this other comedian named Steve Malloy. He at that point had become my partner in advertising. We had been working. I had mentored him through the ad world and we had been, I think, five years in as partners at that point. We've had, you know, a lot of success and together. And so we were freelancing and we would have like daily, if not you know, three time a week check-ins with the owner of this company on, on Zoom. And I guess each time we checked in, we looked pr- progressively worse, you know, like it was not, it was not great. You know, I had a, I was lucky by New York standards, a pretty decent size apartment, 650 square feet, but no, no husband or boyfriend or pet or roommate or job or comedy to do. And I was very much in on this will kill you the minute you're exposed to it. And so I was isolated. I mean, not completely like Steve came over and we would work, but like, I didn't go out and really do anything. And so anyway, they really liked the work we were doing. And at one of the check-ins, he's like, you guys don't really seem happy or healthy. He's like, I don't know what your views on the virus are, but if you guys feel comfortable, if you want to come to Chattanooga, we will get you an apartment for a month and you can come down here and clubs are open. You could do comedy in Chattanooga. You can go to Alabama. You can go to Florida. You can go to Georgia and you could do comedy. And we were like, all right. So we Googled where Chattanooga was, you know, and then we we rented a car. We drove down here and our apartment was on the top floor of this hotel called the Bode Hotel in downtown Chattanooga. And it was mostly empty because of the pandemic. But because we were living there, we became friends with the staff, the management, the the maintenance crew, the the housekeeping teams. And so I'm talking with the manager one day. I'm like, do you want, you know, a comedian, the guy that I'm living with, he's a comedian. We could find a couple other comedians and do a show if you want to entertain the people trapped in this hotel. And he was like, I don't know, the world's ending, do whatever the hell you want, you know? He's like, just limit it to like 20 people. So we did the we did the show, went really well. We did a couple other shows. And then, you know, this company extended us for a second month. So we had been in Chattanooga for two months. And then I went back to New York. And I remember I was on a show with, you know, Renan Hirschberg. Sam Morell was on the show. It's a whole other podcast to talk about what the fuck happened at this show. But, you know, run by people who didn't have their act together, really. They had, it was supposed to be a show on the top of a roof, a rooftop show with some really good comics on it. Rachel Feinstein was on it. And they hadn't secured the venue. So when, when everyone showed up, there was like a dance party happening on the roof of this building. 
And now you've got all these comics who are on the lineup, comics who want to watch the show, and audience members who are there for the show with no place to do it. And it wound up happening in the backyard of another neighbor who saw this commotion, invited them in. And it, I mentioned Sam Rell because he started tweeting how terrible. I mean, the, the owner, basically, we were, it was somebody's birthday party, and they thought it would be a good idea to let us come in and do the comedy show. And very quickly, they did not want the comedy show anymore. But now everybody's sitting yeah. there, and the owner of this apartment is getting drunk, and she's a blue-haired, combat boot-wearing Brooklynite who I think <laughs> physically assaulted Sam Morell, if not if not verbally. And Sam's like tweeting, like, what the what is happening here? And after that, that show was so bad. And I a dog ate my mask and I got a flat bike tire on the way home. I was like, these are a lot of signs that New York might not be for me. And so the next yeah. day I called the manager of that hotel. I'm like, hey, if I rented that apartment that the company got us, how much would it be? And as a New Yorker, I was shocked by how little it was. I'm like, I'll rent it for three months if you let me run that show like legit. That show that we fucked around with. Can I try to make that a show? Because you could do it for three months, but then that's it. And it became a really big moneymaker for the sh- for the hotel. Not only was it bringing in a lot of drink sales, but it was giving a cool glow to the hotel. And the show grew and grew and grew, and the audience grew to 40, then 50, then 60, then 70, then 80. And at one point, we had 50 sold-out shows in a row. And so it was called the Carpetbaggers Comedy Night. And the theme of the show was it would always have New Yorkers on it plus Southeast favorites. And in the beginning, mm-hmm. the hook of the show was that North and South can come together through comedy. And I had this apartment to house the comics so the New York comics didn't have to pay for lodging. And because there weren't a lot of venues in New York, I was able to get great comics like, you know, Caitlin Palufo and Steve Rogers and, you know, Andy Sanford did the show and really fantastic comics got the show up and rolling and gave a momentum. And then when it was selling out and I was able to give myself some quality stage time and to let me meet great comics from like Brad Sativa in Nashville, Scott Easton in Huntsville, Ian Aber in, 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 in Atlanta. And I was able to watch them and, 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 you know, make friends with these guys through the show. I was like, I think maybe I'll just move here. So that's how I want. Yeah. That's the long answer to the short question. How, how Chattanooga, you know, and I love it here. It's, it's, it's a comedian. It's great. Because we're only two hours from Nashville, two hours from Huntsville, two hours from, you know, Knoxville and, and, and Atlanta. Right. And for what I understand, Chattanooga is kind of like the, the Huntsville of Tennessee. It's a little bit more blue and not not as uh, weird, not, not as, uh, I guess, biblical as the rest of Tennessee. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've explored a little bit of Tennessee. And certainly if you go 45 minutes outside of, you know what, if you go 45 minutes outside of New York, city yeah if you go 45 minutes outside of london you're gonna find what's 40 these are people who've chosen to live 45 minutes away from a city yeah you know <laughs> and so there's all different types of of thinking you know yeah yeah do you have a desire to make the comedy full-time yeah of course yes yeah okay. i mean I'm, I'm also you know realistic about how much money i mean maybe it could become a thing but it will never it will never give me the money that i made in the other world I mean, that, right. which nobody should have made anyway. That was, you know, it was an obscene amount of yeah. money to work in those types of places at that time. But yeah, I don't know where this is going to take me, but I know it makes me better at everything else. It makes me better at the other in creative endeavors. It makes me kind of a better person. You know, I'm still a lousy person, but it's made me a better version of a lousy person doing this. And mm-hmm. I've met and the humbling that you can endure doing this is right. healthy. Yeah. I, I think one thing, one of the positives being our age is when 
when you have a bad set, and guess what, folks, you're going to have a bad set. You don't, you've been through enough in your life that it's not that big a deal. I mean, it sucks. You, you hate it, but, and when you have a good set, you don't think you're king of the world either. You, you, you just know, okay, that was a good one. And you can, you can move along and you, you don't get as much of a big head. I would think that if I started younger, my emotional maturity would be of the point that if I had a good show, I would think I was George Carlin. And if I had a bad show, I'd just quit yeah. because I couldn't handle it. Well, you know, it's not just about shows. It's about letting outside forces define you. You know, yeah. like when I lost my job at BuzzFeed, I no longer had a title. And as, you know, a white American man, and maybe women go through this too, but there's definitely this idea of like, you only are your business card. If you don't have a title, if you can't go to a party and say, well, I do this at this place, then, you know, and then do you do it at a cool place? Is it worth talking about? You know, so when that's ripped away from you, there's a lot of, you know, searching about like, well, do I have any value even if I don't have a cool title or even a title? So it's, I think it's healthy to not let, you know, anything from the outside determine your self-worth. I still do. But, you know, I, I, it's a good exercise in that, you know, if you have a job or you don't have a job or if you have a nice house or you don't have a nice house, are you still valuable to yourself? I still go through this. But, yeah, like, you know, it is it is a bit more of an anchor and you're less swept away by a bad set and you're, and you're, last, you're less swept up by a, a good set. But, you know, I still want the good sets. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're always going for that. Yeah, yeah. I, one of the things I really liked about your TED talk was that, it, first of all, it, it really I think it personifies who you are. Everything I see you do seems to center around that TED talk. But it talks about you not necessarily having a full laid out plan and actually starting to do something. And there's almost a force that brings those like-minded people to you. And I, I, I really dug that because I've seen that happen. And I thought that was, I, I, I thought you put it in a great, you, you framed it really well. And thank you. How would you tell somebody, okay, <clears throat> you, 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 you've been through 50 and you know, as we, it seems like as we go through our decades and I'm about to hit 60 is, you know, you have to make decisions. Are are you going to be this person for the rest of your life or are you going to try to grow and learn and, and keep, keep the brain working, I guess, just, just keep everything moving forward. Or are you going to be like, Archie Bunker and you're just going to stay the way you are for the rest of your life and that's the way it is and no nothing's going to change. I feel like so everybody says that you have you have to be active, physically active to live a long time. No, otherwise, you know, the sedentary lifestyle is really bad for you, but I think the same thing goes for your mind. Yeah. And I thought the way you put that Hold up, was, hold up a second. You don't have to Carl they're <laughs> an amazing comedian from Atlanta. Hi, Kyla. She's opening. I'm in, Huntsville. I'm in Huntsville. I'm not too far. No. Hi. How are you? Good. Good. Hi. You performing tonight? She's opening for She's opening for Sean Patton tonight. I'm hosting. She opened last okay, night. Okay, cool. Murdered twice. Yeah. She's staying here because she's doing a few shows here in Chattanooga. There she is. I cool. was about to crawl back. She was crawling on the floor to not be seen. And we would have seen you. Wait, would we have seen you? Oh, we wouldn't have seen you. She's. I don't think so, yes. Anyway, she's great. 
doing the marine crawl. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's great. But but the way you know, the way you frame that, I think everybody that is going through that that decade, you know, and I don't want to call it like midlife crisis or anything. I, I think we all approach things differently. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you watched and I would have liked the TED talk to have been funnier, but you know, every, every TEDx runs things their own way. And this particular one, and I'm very grateful. They were very helpful in helping me craft that. And they flew me out to the West coast to practice it with them. They wanted it to be, it was quite prescriptive and and scripted. And if I went too far off that script, they would have cut the mic, you know, and because (laughs) the projects that I was talking about in that, in that uh, talk were political or attacked corporations in, in pretty vicious ways. They wanted to make them, they wanted things to be said in a way where I was, it was kind of surgical how I had to talk about it. And I hadn't been doing stand up yet. So if I were able to revisit a TED talk, I would try to make it funny and try to make it more entertaining. But thank you for watching it. Yeah. It kind of outlined the projects yeah. and, and, you know, how do you, the goal of it was about, the, the goal of the talk was to help people, hopefully inspire people to move into the unknown and that you yeah. and, and stepping into that unknown is where the answers come from. And if you try to wait till you have all the answers, you know, you will not start. So all the projects that right. I've done have a series of happy accidents that allowed them to be successful. But those accidents don't happen if you don't leave the house. You got to put yourself in harm's way or an accident's way for it to happen. So it was kind of a call to be like, if you have an idea in your notebook, if you have an idea about what you'd like to do, really kind of just go out and step out and do it. And you'll be surprised how the world conspires to help you and I'm not an optimist. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm quite the pessimist, but I'm telling, uh-huh. and even I can't disagree with how the world has shown me that if you put the intention out there with a real commitment, the world, people will come out of the woodwork in some very surprising, comical ways Yeah, make these things happen. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how many people are like, oh, I wanted to do that too. Yeah. And it's funny you talked about TEDx because I was, I was on a, a group that was trying to get TEDx going in South Bend when I was there. Mm-hmm. And when I read the requirements and stuff like that, I was like, okay, <laughs> this, th- th- this is, this is not for me. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah I, I, I cut that one off really quick and I, I just couldn't see myself not saying exactly what I think. And, oh yeah. No, and, it's not. That's not the Not being subtle about it. Yeah. Well, I was glad I got to do it. So, you know, it was it was quite an experience. Yeah. So what's next for you? I mean, I I see that you do so many things and, and I know that you're really concentrating on the comedy and stuff like that, but what kind of things do you have going on right now creatively? Just stand up. I mean, I did take a full time job. I haven't had a full time job in about eleven years. I went to go work. I guess, yeah, he's my boss. My boss is now this guy, Andrew Titer, who I did the Captured Project with. The Captured Project was a project where we had people in prison draw portraits of people we felt should be in prison, which were the CEOs of companies destroying the world. We did that project together. We did the Snowden Statue Project together. We did a project that tried to raise awareness about government and corporate surveillance called We Are Always Listening, where we hid tape recorders all around New York City and we released the conversations. It was We did a lot of culture jamming activist projects and we worked at ad agencies together for many years. And he took a full-time job at a company called Hatch, which you know is a company that tries to promote healthy sleep routines through devices and content. And he was telling me how great the people were and what the creative opportunities were there to kind of help kind of frame what people's relationship with sleep is like. 
And so they're really cool. And so creatively, like I'm kind of, you know, my days are taken up with trying to help, you know, build that brand and, and get people excited about what that space is all about. And then do write the stand-up, perform the stand-up. I also co-produce Don't Tell Comedy Shows in Chattanooga. So that's really all the bandwidth I have. You know, I help out on the Lookout Comedy Festival, which is run by Donnie Marsh. So, you know, I think on some level when I started the stand-up, I thought this would be like another project, like like mm-hmm. the Hipster Traps, like the Captured Project. And each of those projects, some of those projects took in the beginning two months, then four months, then eight months. The Snow, The Captured Project was about a year and a half. The Snowden statue was about a year and a half. And I was like, I'm going to, the next project is, can I make people believe I'm a stand-up comedian? Can I make myself believe I'm a stand almost like an impersonator? And then I was like, oh, and I got into the scene and I was like, oh, to really do this, to really, really do this, I'm going to have to do this a couple times a night, all the time, and maybe for 10 years. And I was like, well, what else yeah. am I doing for the next 10 years? So this is the project. There you go. This yeah. is it. You know, yeah. what's next is just getting better at doing this. And I still am trying to figure out what that even means. I was talking with Carla right. yesterday about some of this. It's like, you know, to do this, I feel for me, the only way to get better is to be on stage more. And the way to be on stage more is to get obviously booked more. And to get booked more is to do work that people enjoy or that the clubs yeah. enjoy. And then, the, but that's not always what I want to talk about. And so, you know, and I've listened to the interviews of the comics who I really enjoy. And I'm like, you know what, it, talking about things that are difficult, especially when the jokes are new and they're not ready yet, requires a lot of failure. So you need places to fail, but you don't want to, f- you, there's that balancing act of like, where can I fail and succeed enough that I can be invited back? And so, yeah. you know, Michael, who runs the comedy catch, he put a really, really articulate, he articulated it really well to me. He's like, hey, I see what you're trying to do with your comedy and where you want to go. And, and the types of rooms that you might want to eventually be in all the time. But the path there the journey to the place you want to go is littered with a lot more clubs like mine than the comedy seller, you know, and yeah. it would behoove you to learn how to navigate as many different types of rooms as you can. You don't have to, you don't have to at all. It might just take you longer because you won't have as many 10,000 hours on stage. So I'm always trying to figure that out. Like where, if I don't run the jokes about the topics that I like enough, then how do I ever get good at that? Like those are the things that I'm grappling with. And one of the things I look, I look back on is I'm like, are the things that I'm struggling with more interesting than the things I am struggling with when I started? Like when I started, I was like, can I just write a setup and a punchline? Can I put a few of them together so that it's a five-minute set? Can the five-minute set be tight? Can I do two different five-minute sets so I can get past and do check spots? Can I be put on shows with people whose work I respect? There's like, it's always a a more interesting challenge. And then, so I'm I'm grappling with that. Like, you know, there's the stuff I want to talk. And then I'm often a host. And I also don't think a host, at least for me, for me, being a host, I haven't found a way to do that and talk about, you know, Palestine and Israel. Yeah. The host. It might not be the place that people before they've had a drink. And when you your your job is to be the pilot cleanser between the comics and you're like, oh, that guy again, he's coming back with his shit. So those are the things I'm kind of fumbling around in the dark with. Yeah. This is the yeah. project. I when you say what's next, it'll just be another component of stand up is what's next. Right, right. I will say that I watched your clips from further back and watched them up to more current time. You were better when I started. You, right? you, you were better when I started. You, you, <laughs> no, you, no, you've definitely gotten better. And the stage presence and, and just the timing and all that kind of stuff that really comes with it. 
And I'm I'm really struggling with the same thing that you are because when I was in South Bend, I stayed totally middle of the road because I thought that was what would be expected of me, being my age and what I look like and everything else. And when I decided to jump back in, I you know, I, I said to myself that, you know, I don't think this is gonna ever be my way of making a living, so I might as well do what I wanna do. But I'm still straddling that line because I, I'm I'm doing 30 minutes in Athens tonight, oh. and so so Athens isn't isn't gonna my depression. You know, my 15 minutes on depression is probably not gonna go <laughs> there. So so I had to pull out a lot of my old stuff to and and I've you know I'm at the end. So the 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 lady that owns the brewery said. I said, I said, what kind of a set do you want? And she said, just read the room. I'm like, okay. So there, there's a possibility there might be kids and stuff like that. But I've got, you know, I've got, I've got pot and porn and and uh, fuck around and find out is my last three bits. And I got, I got to figure out if I can actually say them or not. Yeah, I hear you. Based yeah. on the audience. It's funny you say that. And now you're from Huntsville because there's this comedian that I'm friends with uh, from New York, Ben Miller, and he does a uh, science comedy. And he yeah. booked to do a show at Shenanigans, and he asked me to open, and Jonathan Silver was the host. And uh, and then like a week before the show, he's like, hey, Jeff, you know, I don't know if I knew this, and if I knew it, I don't know if I told you, but it's going to be a PG-13 show. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was doing 18 or 20 minutes. And I go, okay, I can I can make that work. I have probably five minutes on Huntsville alone, so I can, I can, cut, I can cut into it with that. And then we get to the venue, and there are like 11-year-olds at the show. Yeah, it may have been a nine-year-old show, and they were all taller than me, which was very upsetting. But you know, Kim Kimberly Wilson, she's like, "So Jeff, like, can you can you do like G? You know, like yeah, PG And uh, it went really well, and and Kim was so sweet because afterwards she goes, "Look at you, you're a clean comic, you know." Yeah. And I don't think it was super clean. Like I, you know, there was really nothing too racy. But it was good to know that I could pull out 18 minutes in Huntsville if I can use five of it about Huntsville. I have 13 minutes that have cleaned stuff. That's not Huntsville, really. Oh, that's great. Let me know if children at your show tonight. Yeah, yeah. I, I, who knows what's going to be there? But I, I saw Kim on Thursday, and she said, can I ask how old you are? <laughs> I said, 59. Where does that put me? And she said, okay, I'm younger. Not much, but I'm younger. She's great. She just did, she did one of the last Carpetbagger shows, and we just had her on a Don't Tell show. And she murders. She's great. Yeah, and she's got such a yeah. Murder. She's yeah. She's got a very a very quick mind, and she, she her point of view is just excellent. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, being being older and being a teacher and all that kind of stuff, and and try to keep up with the kids and being gay at the same time is just really is is she puts that together really. Well. Yeah, she really does. Yeah. Well, I got to say, I really enjoyed meeting you. And, uh, you know, I hope we can have lunch sometime since we're close. Yeah, I'll, next and... time I come to Huntsville. And anybody listening, next time I come to Huntsville, let's all go get lunch. Do you mind that I invite everybody, yeah. Scott? We're all going to Everybody. Everybody can come. Yeah. yeah. How many people How many people listening to this? Are we having 10,000 people show up for lunch? Is that where we're? Maybe seven. Seven. I can be here. That's fine. <laughs> That's cool. Mo, mo, most, mo, actually, a lot of my listeners are in Canada for some reason. Oh, I love I'm Canada. very big in Canada. They played. Oh, god damn it! Where was it? Man, I had a. 
it was a great show that this guy Michael Terry put together in a city outside of Toronto. And it was so much fun. It was like at a speakeasy. And I wish I uh-huh. sugar, sugar, sugar rum. Okay. That's called. Anyway, having gone to school in Buffalo, I would go to Canada quite a bit. So I, I welcome Canadian yeah. friends to come down and have lunch with us. Cool, cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. And where can folks uh, find you as far as uh, social media and website and all that? Well, they can go to thatguyimet.com <laughs> and all my okay. socials are there. And eventually I should probably set up shortballjew.com. Right now I just own the site. But yeah, thatguyimet.com, you can then <laughs> click the icons for Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or send me an email. Yeah, or go to my website and see my calendar. And if I'm where you are, I'd love to meet y'all in person. Great, great. Well, it's been really nice getting to know you, and thanks again for being on the show. Hey, man, I hope to see you again soon, man, in person or on another discussion. Yeah.